0: As you're standing, do notice our text this evening, John 20, verse 21. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Amen. Please be seated. Thank you, Mike. I've been invited to give a brief mission report about the work of Reform Theological Seminary before the message tonight. Reform Seminary was started in 1966. The desire of our founders was to try to uh, provide a Bible-believing, uh, reformed theology-embracing, uh, great commission-committed uh, uh, pastorate for the Southern Presbyterian Church. The Southern Presbyterian Church in those days was in the grip of neo-orthodoxy and liberalism, and the desire was to see that denomination reformed, and uh, set back on a path to fidelity to Christ. We miserably failed uh, in that particular aspiration. But God often uses our faithfulness in unexpected ways. One of the principles that I constantly remind my congregation and my students is, you don't get to choose how the Lord uses your faithfulness. God decides how he will use his faithfulness. And so though the founders of RTS aspired for RTS to bring about a revival of Bible believing, uh, gospel preaching uh, pastors in the Southern Presbyterian Church, what RTS has in fact done over the last fifty-seven years is supplied uh, ministers who believe the Scriptures, who embrace the Reformed faith, and are committed to the Great Commission for no fewer than 50 different denominations. Uh, RTS students are ministering in about 80 countries around the world right now. And uh, at any given time, we have about 50 denominations represented in the student body. And what we also didn't know what was happening in the late 1960s is there was a reformed awakening happening here and around the world. Everywhere I go and because of my job, I get to be on about Uh, every inhabited continent about once every 18 months, and everywhere I go, uh, the Reformed faith is spreading and growing. I landed in South Africa uh, about 10 years ago to uh, go to a a preaching conference, and I was met by two young men from the townships of uh, Johannesburg. Who had, uh, in their early 20s, started a group called Reformation Township. And if you know what a township is in South Africa, it's not a place you want to be. Uh, and th- these were young men from the townships that were spreading the Reformed faith from township to township in Johannesburg. And in Cape Town, I could tell you stories like that over and over. And by the way, when, when I met them, they had downloaded the RTS mobile app onto their phones. And they had listened to 45 courses by RTS professors on the mobile app. And they were using that to teach people uh, the Christian faith and reform theology in the townships of South Africa. RTS started in Jackson in 1966 on a horse farm in West Jackson. There was one campus until the year 1989, and from that time, RTS has opened up campuses in eight cities and seven states and two foreign nations. Jackson, Orlando, Florida, Charlotte, North Carolina, Washington, D.C., Atlanta, Georgia, Houston, Texas, New York City, Dallas, Texas, Sao Paulo, Brazil, and uh Jakarta, Indonesia. RTS is ministering in all those places, uh, so we can actually say the sun never sets on RTS, uh, like it used to be said of the British Empire. Um, we have uh, RTS, when, when RTS began, had 14 students enroll. Uh, today, at any given time, there are about 2,000 students studying at RTS, and it's the largest confessional reform seminary in the world with the third largest theological faculty of any seminary in North America. It's really amazing what the Lord has done over the years, but we're still committed to those original core principles. We believe in the sole final authority of scripture, the inerrancy, the inspiration, and the infallibility of the Bible. We believe in the reformed faith as it's expressed in the Westminster Standards, and we're committed to the Great Commission, and we want those three things to animate all the students that graduate from RTS. We prepare pastors, but we also prepare missionaries, counselors, Teachers, campus ministers, and others to serve the church. And um, about half of our students come from Presbyterian and Reformed uh, backgrounds and churches and denominations. Uh, but about 60% of our students leave RTS. Presbyterian and Reformed. So we grab some of them when they, when they come. The second largest group of students at RTS are non-denominational and Baptist students and then Anglicans and then about 38 other things at any given time. Uh, but, and so we supply the ministry in almost all of the North American Presbyterian and Reformed uh, denominations, including the PCA and uh but also denominations around the world. Uh it you you may be encouraged by this. The the president of the largest African American denomination in the world, the National Baptist Convention, USA, is twice a graduate of RTS, Jerry Young uh is his name. And it just he, he ministers at New Hope Baptist Church in Jackson. It just makes me happy every time uh I see him uh to and, and let me say he has he has fought Manfully against theological liberalism in his denomination. The seminary of that denomination was captured by professors from Vanderbilt Divinity School. And he has, been, uh, he has been working very hard in that denomination to make sure young people were educated in places that believe the inerrancy of Scripture. So, you know, there's a, there's a man of conviction in a place of real uh, influence. And I could speak of stories like that Uh, All the time. We're profoundly thankful for your support. Uh, You have the daughter of a founder of RTS in your congregation. I'll let you guess who that is. Uh, But Trinity Church Montgomery has been very, very good to us over the years, and we're very, very thankful for your support of RTS. Now. What we need to give our attention to is the word of God. So let me let me if you have your Bibles open them up to John chapter 20, because I'm going to take you just a few places tonight as we look through a very simple message. I want to I want to go back to the very sentence that um, Mike just read to you. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. And let me say this is often called John's Great Commission or John's account of Jesus' great commission to his disciples. You know Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20, as the great commission. Uh, Go, make disciples of all nations. This is often called John's version of Jesus' great commission to the disciples. And he says to them, Peace be with you, that's the second time he said it in the chapter. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And in this little phrase, I'd like to think with you for just a few moments about the ground of our involvement in missions. And the model of our involvement in missions. The ground of our involvement and the model of our involvement. Uh, at missions conferences, it's often uh, Matthew chapter uh twenty eight that is preached from uh as part of the missions. Now you've you've chosen twenty four fourteen, which is that's good. That changes things up a little bit, but usually people get to Matthew twenty eight. Go make disciples of all nations. And nations there, by the way, is ethne That's people. It's not nation-states. It's people. It's it's, uh, go to all the peoples of the earth, all the people groups or language groups of the earth with the gospel. Make disciples of those peoples. And uh, that passage is expounded very often as the foundation of the Christian work of world missions. But it's very clear from what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 28, that he has in mind the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promises. In other words, world missions, as we saw this morning from Psalm 67, isn't a New Testament thing, it's an Old Testament thing. The the Christian mission to the world is rooted in an Old Testament promise. And that Old Testament promise is found in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, where God says to Abraham, In you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So when Jesus says to his disciples in Matthew chapter 28 uh, to go into all nations or go to all nations and make disciples, He's calling on them to to fulfill a promise that had been made to Abraham 2,000 years before. So missions doesn't start in, you know, around AD 30 with Jesus giving the Great Commission. It starts at least as far back as Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. And when Jesus calls his disciples to go to the nations, go to the peoples, it's in fulfillment of what God had promised Abraham, 2,000 years before. But there is something even farther back that is at the ground of our involvement in missions. And Jesus says it here in John chapter 20, verse 21. It is the sending of the Son by the Father. The Son was sent by the Father By divine decree, determined before the foundation of the world. And so when we are sent and when we are called to engage in the work of missions, we're engaging in something that is not just grounded in Jesus' words in the Great Commission around A.D. 30, not just something that's grounded in the promises of God to Abraham around 2000 B.C., but something that stretches back into the, 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 the time before time, into eternity past, before the foundations of the world, when the Father determined to send his Son to save a people for himself. And so Jesus is saying to the disciples, it's as the Father sent me that I am sending you. In other words, when, when, when Jesus sends us on the errand of mission, it is something grounded in what the Father determined to do before the foundations of the world. And that, 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 should, that should humble us that we're involved in that, and that should encourage us greatly that we are involved in that. Jesus draws attention here to the fact that he is both sender and sent. And his sending of us is modeled on the Father's sending of him. And our being sent is modeled on his being sent by the Father. He emphasizes both of those things. He is both sender. And sent. And his sending of us is modeled on the Father's sending of him. And our being sent is modeled on him being sent by the Father. But before we talk about that model, let's think about what it means that Jesus was sent by the Father. That the Father sent the Son. And one of the things it means is... That the whole work of evangelism and missions is grounded in the love of God. It's very important for us as we think about the work of Christ that we remember that it is not the Father who is the judge who is ready to pour out his wrath and the son who is the loving one who uh, intervenes for us on the cross to try and turn the father's wrath away, no, the son's death on the cross is the expression of the father's love for us. Jesus is not getting the Father to love to us, to love us on the cross. Jesus is the expression of the Father's love to us on the cross. And think of how the New Testament talks about that regularly. Uh, Mike read this morning from John three hundred and sixteen in the Assurance of Pardon. And what does John 3.16 say? We often think of John 3.16 as about the love of Jesus. And I I don't want to take anything away from the love of Jesus in offering himself as a sacrifice for our sins. But listen to John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whose love is the subject of John 3.16? The father's. It's the Father in His love who gives the Son. So the sending of the Son is the expression of the Father's love for a world of lost sinners. The Son on the cross is not getting the Father to love us. The son is on the cross because of the father's love. Do you ever sing at Christmas time the beautiful old hymn that dates from the early days of Christianity of the father's love begotten? That's exactly what that hymn is talking about. Jesus, the only begotten son, is sent into this world and comes into this world because of the father's love. He is the expression of the Father's love. And it's very important for us to understand this because our own work in missions, however we're involved, whether we're involved in going or whether we're involved in supporting those who go, needs to be motivated by the right thing. I've known people that have gone into the ministry and they've gone to the mission field because deep down inside they're trying to get God to love them. And that will never work. That will never work because, it, you see, it's, there's a suspicion in the heart that somehow we need to do something in order to earn the Father's love. When, in fact, the Father's love was free and overflowing for his people from before the foundation of the world. It makes all the difference in the world. That what you do, you do from the Father's love, not to try and earn the Father's love. Have have you ever been able to serve someone who you know loves you? It's It's a real delight to serve someone who you know loves you. But if you've ever tried to please someone in order to get them to love you, you know that it'll tear you up inside. And... One of the things that Jesus draws attention to is his certainty of the Father's love for him. And if you'll turn back with me to John 17, one of the things that he says to his disciples in the high priestly prayer is this. Look at John 17, 23. I in them and you in me that they may be perfected in unity, that the world may know that you sent me, and did love them even as you love me. It, isn't that amazing? You know, I, I think if I stood up here without the warrant of Jesus' words in John 17, 23, and said to you, The Father does not love you less than he loves his own Son, you might suspect that I was a heretic. But Jesus himself, Prays that we would be brought into the love that the Father has had for him from before the foundation of the world. And that's a transforming thing for everything we do in Christian life, including missions. Gerhardus Voss very famously once said, How is it that a Christian knows that God will never stop loving him? And do you know how he answers? Here's how he answers. Because he never started. Now what does he mean by that? He he means that there was never a point in time when God did not love his people. He loved us from the foundation of the world. The old Scottish paraphrase of Romans 8 puts it this way. He loved us from the first of time. He'll love us to the last. And Jesus is profoundly aware of that love of God and he prays in John 17 that his disciples would be caught up in that love and that we who believe through his disciples would be caught up in that love that he enjoys with the Father and he sends us from that love as missionaries into this world. Not to get the Father to love us, but to express the prior love of God for us. That's huge. That changes everything in life. Maybe some of you have read the missionary autobiography of John Payton, who was a Scottish uh, Reformed Presbyterian, that's the Covenanters, uh, in the 19th century who went to the New Hebrides in the South Pacific and actually ministered amongst cannibals. Uh, for most of his life. And uh, you may know that one of the things that constantly encouraged John Payton was his father's love for him. He had a wonderful relationship with his father. Have any of you ever read Peyton's autobiography? Okay, there are a few. Okay, so I'm going to treat, I'm going I'm to try, try and entice you into reading the whole thing by reading to you this little snippet that, uh, John Payton writes about when, when he felt a call to the ministry, he, he lived in a little town in Southern Scotland, Southwest Scotland, near Carlisle, England, called Tortherwald. And, uh, that town was 76 miles from Glasgow. So he was going to go to Glasgow to study for the ministry, become a city missionary, and then eventually go halfway around the world to the South Pacific as a missionary. And um, he had to walk 40 miles to get to the nearest train stop to get a train the rest of the way to Glasgow. So his father agreed to walk with him part of the way. And then they had agreed at at some point, his father was a farmer, at some point along the way, the father would stop and pray with him and go back to the farm, and John Patton would go on, John Payton would go on to Glasgow. And he tells the story here, my dear father walked with me the first six miles of the way. His counsels and tears and heavenly conversation on that parting journey are fresh in my heart As if they had been but yesterday. And tears are on my cheeks as freely now as then. Whenever memory steals me away to that scene. For the last half mile or so. We walked on together in almost unbroken silence. My father as was often his custom. Carried his hat in his hand. While his long flowing yellow hair then yellow, but in later years white as snow, streamed like a girl's down his shoulders. His lips kept moving in silent prayers for me, and his tears fell fast when our eyes met each other in looks for which all speech was in vain. We halted on reaching the appointed parting place. He grasped my hand firmly for a minute in silence. And then he solemnly and affectionately said, God bless you, my son. Your father's God prosper you and keep you from all evil. Unable to say more, his lips kept moving in silent prayer. In tears we embraced and parted. I ran off as fast as I could and when about to turn the corner in the road where he would lose the sight of me. I looked back And I saw him still standing with his head uncovered where I had left him, gazing after me. And waving my hat in adieu. I rounded the corner and out of sight in an instant. But my heart was too full and sore to carry me further, and so I darted into the side of the road and I wept for a time. Then, rising up cautiously, I climbed the dike to see if he yet stood where I had left him. And just at that moment, I caught a glimpse of him climbing the dike and looking out for me. He did not see me. And after he gazed eagerly in my direction for a while, he got down, set his face towards home, and began to return. His head still uncovered and his heart, I felt sure, rising in prayers for me. I watched through blinding tears. Until his form faded from my gaze and then hastening on my way vowed deeply and oft by the help of God to live and act so as never to grieve or dishonor such a father and a mother as he had given me. And Peyton talks about over the years how he would often fight against sin by remembering what a loving father he had. And he, one of the things he talks about is hearing his father go into his closet and pray for him by name when he was a little boy. And, and how he, he remembered that throughout his adult life. So, so Peyton is deeply aware of his father's love for him. And it's part of the thing that impels him in life and holiness and mission. Jesus is deeply aware of the Father's love for him, and it impels him in life and in mission. And he will often say things like, it is my food to do the will of him who sent me. Jesus is saying, it's like spreading a seven-course feast in front of me for me to get to do the will of God. And the Lord Jesus wants us to have that attitude towards our God and Father. You may not have had a father like John Payton, but you have a Heavenly Father who loves you even better than John Payton's Father loved him. Every single one of us have a Heavenly Father who, John Payton's Father, is just a faint shadow of our Heavenly Father's love. And so Jesus wants us to realize, again, he was sent by a sender whose love was upon us from before the foundation of the world. So everything we do in life flows out, is grounded in the love of the Father for us. So that's the ground of our mission. But what about the model for our mission? The model for our mission is The Lord Jesus Christ himself. He was sent by the Father. The point here is that our mission is grounded in the Son's mission. Our being sent is grounded in the Son being sent. And again, that's amazing and humbling. You know, you you think, Lord, when you sent your Son you sent someone who was the fullness of deity in bodily form you you sent someone who was truly god as well as truly man and there was no sin in him you're sending us <laughs> really i mean talk about a letdown The Father sent His own Son. And the Son sends us? It's humbling, right? But here's the point. You are precious to the Son like the Son is precious to the Father. We need to remember that in life, my friends. You are precious to the Son Like the Son is precious to the Father. There's nothing more precious to the Son in this world than His bride. There's nothing more precious to the Father than the Son. And what does the Father do? He gives the most precious thing in the universe to hell-deserving sinners. And what does the Son do? He gives the most precious thing to Him to hell-deserving sinners. So that they might be brought into the love of the Father for the Son. It, and again, it's, it's humbling and it's encouraging. You are the bride of the Son. He delight, you are what the Father has given the Son from before the foundation of the world. I often ask my students, have you ever wondered what does God get out of redemption? And we we know what we get out of redemption. We get justification and we get adoption and we get sanctification and we get glorification. We know what we get out of redemption. But have you ever wondered, what does God get out of redemption? And the answer is you. You're what he wants. And again, you have to say, really, Lord? This, This is what you want? And the son's answer is, yes, you're my bride, you're my people, you're my body, you're the temple I came to build. Yes, you, that's what I want. We need to remember that when we're on the work of mission, because what we're on the work of mission to do is call men and women and boys and girls from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation into that fellowship and communion of love with the Father and the Son. When when we realize what the Father and the Son have done for us, what they've given us, you can't help but want others to be brought into that communion of love. Uh, Robert Murray McChain was a very famous uh, Scottish minister. I think we sang a text. Did we sing it? We sang a McChain text this morning? It's an amazing text, beautiful text. McChain described, he said, My whole ministry boils down to this. I wanted to bring my congregation into the experience of the love of God for them. So that they might return that in love to God. To bring them into the experience of the love of God for them. So that they return that in love to God. That grounds missions. That grounds missions. When you realize what you've been given. When you realize what the father has done in sending his son. And what the son has done in sending you. You want the world to be brought into that experience of love, even as you have been brought into that experience of love. And that's important for every missionary, and that's important for every one of us that supports every missionary to know. So that what we do in the work of world mission flows from the ground Of God sending his son, a ground that he had determined from before the foundation of the world. And from the son's sending of his most precious thing, his own bride. What an amazing thing. No wonder we spend a month, a year at Trinity Presbyterian Church thinking about missions. Because world missions is grounded In the mission of the Son. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. We ask that you would work its truth deep in our heart and that you would meet us at your table and show us the feast of love. And that by these and other ministries of your Holy Spirit, you would make us missionaries ready to go and tell and give so that all might be brought into the fellowship of love with the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.